Welcome to Tisky Sour. Four big stories tonight. Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi. The Rishi Sunak campaign going up in flames. Trust having her first big blooper of the leadership race so far. Looking pretty bad for her, although she will be our next prime minister, unfortunately. And then we have a pretty impressive opening speech from an Australian senator. US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has caused a diplomatic row by taking a trip to Taiwan. The visit is controversial as the international status of Taiwan is disputed. China sees Taiwan as a breakaway province, a position which has some historical merit, seeing as the polity was founded by the losing side in the Chinese Civil War. For its part, though, Taiwan is defensive of its autonomy, and the island has grown into a successful and wealthy democracy. So why has Nancy Pelosi decided to visit Taiwan despite these sensitivities? Well, the US Congresswoman has a history as a bit of a China hawk. And this trip can be seen as part of a more than 30-year-long campaign to provoke or stand up to China's leaders. For example, in 1991, two years after the protests and massacre at Tiananmen Square, Pelosi was part of a US delegation that unfurled a banner commemorating the deceased demonstrators. This was a newsreel from The Time. The three U.S. Congress members, part of a human rights delegation, said they couldn't leave China without visiting Tiananmen Square to pay their respects to pro-democracy activists slain there two years ago. We've been told for two days now that there's freedom of speech in China. The lawmakers unfurled a small hand-painted memorial banner. It is a memory which still burns bright, and it is a cause which will never die. As they laid three white flowers at the foot of the monument to martyrs, Beijing police moved in. They ordered the Congress members to stop the ceremony and ordered press members to put down their cameras. Police pulled the three U.S. lawmakers aside for questioning and roughed up and detained seven television journalists. The U.S. lawmakers leave Beijing tomorrow. Nancy Pelosi no doubt sees her visit to Taiwan as a continuation of that legacy. In her eyes, the Taiwanese, like the Tiananmen protesters before them, risk being crushed by the Chinese government. She presents her trip as a symbol of support for a free and democratic Taiwan. It's really important uh, for the message to be clear that in the Congress, House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans are committed to the security of Taiwan in order to have Taiwan be able to most effectively defend themselves. Uh, But it also is about our shared values of democracy and freedom and how Taiwan has been exampled to the world in that regard. That was Pelosi speaking next to Taiwan's president who welcomed the trip. Not everyone is impressed, though. Lyle Goldstein is director of Asia Engagement at the Defense Priorities Think Tank. He told The Guardian, This foolish political stunt is unlikely to cause a war in itself, but it will only accelerate the sad process of sleepwalking into a global and national catastrophe at some unspecified time in the future, preserving Washington's one-China policy and strategic ambiguity that are best approaches to maintain Taiwan's autonomy. Now, the one-China policy is a reference to the U.S.'s current commitment to not recognize Taiwan as an independent and sovereign state, even if it does defend its autonomy. And strategic ambiguity refers to the policy of never wholly committing to defending Taiwan from any Chinese incursion, while giving strong hints any action would come with a strong counteraction. According to Goldstein, Pelosi's visit threatened both. So to find out more about the context of Pelosi's visit, I spoke earlier to Brian Hugh, a journalist based in Taiwan. I began by asking him to explain the current constitutional status of Taiwan and its relationship to China. But first, just for clarity, Brian mentions the PRC and the ROC. The PRC is the People's Republic of China or the China run from Beijing. The ROC, or, or, you know, the normal China, the China we all call China. The ROC stands for the Republic of China, which is still the official title of what we all call Taiwan. So Taiwan has de jure, uh, does not have de jure independence. That is to say, formal independence written and codified in law. But then it is de facto independent. So Taiwan, as I mentioned, was never controlled by the PRC. It has its own currency, its own economy, its own military, its own government. It has elections, free and democratic elections that don't take place in China, um, its own president, and that sort of thing. So it is a fully functioning state. It's just not acknowledged as such by the majority of the world's countries. And that's partly due to Chinese pressure. It's also due to the U.S. de-recognizing the ROC, the name by which Taiwan is officially known, and recognizing the PRC instead. 
And so that has uh, further led to the de-recognition of, of Taiwan. And the handful of countries that slowly recognize Taiwan are mostly small states. Uh, they're often politically corrupt and they're backed by the Taiwanese government in return for the funding in order to continue to acknowledge Taiwan so that Taiwan does have some allies that would speak up for international organizations. China, I mean, as, as we've already covered, sees Taiwan as a, as a region of China. It wants Taiwan to be officially and de facto part of China, part of the PRC. Are you concerned that that will be done by force? Do you think that the near future potentially involves an invasion by China onto the island of Taiwan? Yeah. So uh, fear of a Chinese invasion is nothing new for Taiwan. This has occurred for decades. And so I think people have gotten quite used to it. There's always been the threat of the PRC forcibly annexing Taiwan. But I think what needs to be kept in mind is that there are very much hurdles to it. A staging invasion is not so easy. First, it would be detected in advance. You would be detecting the troops massing on the coasts of China through satellite imagery. And then you have to think about the troop losses that occur, because it's not just that Taiwan is small and China is large. Modern military science favors a defender. And so estimates of the number of losses are the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, that it could be the largest naval invasion since D-Day. And so for China to actually get to that point, it is lacking uh, some capacity. For example, just the ability to bring about the amount of troops you need to occupy Taiwan over just across the sea. And then you'll be incurring very heavy losses. And this is even before allies of Taiwan are getting involved. This is just Taiwan's own defenses. It is mostly mountainous. There's only a few beaches large enough to actually mount a label invasion and so forth. Then you, in theory, have a male population that does know how to use guns because of the military draft. And so you might be facing resistance. So the death toll will be quite high. It's more likely that China would take a intermediate form of military action, such as a blockade or seizing one of Taiwan's outlying islands or, or some kind of uh, action like that, that is full, not a full-scale invasion, but could still send a message. The thing is that if that occurs, then the rest of the region will be much more alarmed and might be much stronger actions directed against China after that. And so, for example, now with the recent military live fire exercises China has declared for the next four days, the Ministry of National Defense in Taiwan claimed this might be a blockade. That'll be seen if they're willing to go that far. But uh, I think there will also be consequences. It's not just kind of a one-way street either. Let's talk about the specifics of Pelosi's visit and its consequences. I mean, she's framing this as you know, showing America's commitment to Taiwan. Other people are seeing this as an unnecessary provocation. Maybe it's about her own domestic sort of political interest. She wants a legacy. Where do you land on that? Does this seem like a, a provocation and could it backfire for Taiwan? Um, I think it's a mystery for me to speculate about Pelosi's motivations because, I mean, her mind is a black box to me. I mean, the mind of any American politician or any politician, really. And what they see as their interests or the interests of their nation are, if these are actually any converge in any way, it's a mystery to me. But it could be a legacy thing. It could be aimed at showing that the Democrats are strong on China with midterm elections coming up. And so support for Taiwan would be a way to signal that. It could also be that Pelosi uh, is trying to pressure Biden in some way regarding foreign policy. And so it is one of those questions. But I think that when you do look at the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, for, it is for the U.S. interest that they are maintaining this relationship. And so there's definitely a reason why, as to why Pelosi thought it was necessary to make this trip. It just might not be in Taiwan's best interests. Uh, there are some reports that were unconfirmed, and it's uh, purported to be from a leak. And it was in pro-China media outlets in Taiwan. But it was that the uh, presidential administration in Taiwan had tried to disinvite Pelosi because the view is that it was too dangerous, but that Pelosi was still insistent on going through with the trip. If so, that serves Taiwan does not actually really have an ability to say no to American politicians because of this security relation in which America is theoretically Taiwan's security grantor from China. Although that is, of course, not sure. There's no commitment to that. And what kind of response have we seen from China so far? I mean, I know, you know there was speculation that her plane will need defending from Chinese missiles. I mean, obviously none of that happened. But I mean, what response has there been? I think military exercises have been sort of up since Pelosi visited. Uh, yeah, that's right. So um, there were incursions to Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Uh, that's not airspace. It's the area around Taiwan in which planes usually state who they are, where they're coming from, and, and that sort of thing. They identify themselves. And so there are 21 incur uh, incursions by China yesterday, and there are 27 today. Uh, so it's pretty high. Uh, there are Chinese naval vessels spotted off of Orchid Island, which is one of Taiwan's outlying islands. Uh, there are trade measures targeting Taiwan uh, products, for example, food products. Uh, there are 100 products that are banned Yesterday and today, there's more bans announced of fish, of uh, citrus, of uh, sand, natural sand exports from China to Taiwan. And there's just reports actually just a few hours ago that a Taiwanese man in Zhejiang was arrested in China on charges of trying to push for Taiwanese independence. And so this is a politically motivated charge. Uh, there have been some cases of Taiwanese that are detained on politically motivated charges if they are in China, traveling through or living there and so forth. But uh, it's not common. And so this might also be in this timing. And so I think 
China will step up the ways in which it tries to seek to intimidate Taiwan in the next few days, at the very least. They need to have some show of force after the Pelosi visit, so as to not coming off looking weak. That was Brian Hughes speaking to me earlier today. Liz Truss is way ahead in the Tory leadership race and therefore looks set to be our next prime minister. That's a problem because her principal plan announced this week was to cut millions of people's wages. The policy was briefed to journalists late on Monday night. Martin Kimber is a journalist at Sky News. He tweeted this. Breaking. Liz Truss says she'll cut £11 billion from the civil service if elected prime minister. She'll cut civil servants' time off from 27 to 25 days and scrap the role of diversity officers. £8.8 billion will be saved by cutting the pay of those living outside London and the South East. You can see the thinking behind this policy. Liz Truss is offering billions of pounds in tax cuts, but she doesn't want to tell people their services or pensions will be cut. So instead, she's looking to trim the fat behind the scenes. And the main way she's proposing to do this is to weight civil servants' pay to the cost of wherever they live. A briefing note sent from the Trust campaign to journalists explained the thinking. Liz Trust will introduce pay boards tailoring pay to the cost of living where civil servants actually work. National pay boards mean that civil servants' pay is negotiated at a national level, meaning no account is taken of the regional cost of living. By introducing regional boards, civil servants' pay can be adjusted in line with the actual areas where civil servants work, saving billions. They also said in their briefing that this could save up to £8.8 billion per year. Now, hundreds of thousands of civil servants getting a pay cut would be controversial enough in the midst of a cost of living crisis, but the real implications of this policy briefing were even worse. Wonks immediately started to question Team Truss's numbers, and Alex Thomas from the Institute for Government tweeted this. It's impossible to save £8.8 billion from civil service wages. The entire civil service wage bill is £9 billion. Truss's plans must refer to the wider public sector. So this isn't mandarins moving from London, it's nurses, teachers' pay being adjusted down. Less war on Whitehall, more war on Workington. So a reference um, to regions in the Midlands and the North where you'd get nurses getting a pay cut. And what this is, I mean, what this policy looked like in the middle of a leadership campaign, a party that says it's committed to levelling up has you know, a future leader, Truss, appearing to be proposing pay cuts for nurses, teachers, and all public sector workers who live outside the South East and London. So could that really be the case? Well, the following morning, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's backing Truss, suggested there'd been some mix-up. But it's not just the civil service, is it? Liz Truss is also talking about anyone's pay for the government. That involves teachers, that involves police officers, mm. involves nurses, doesn't it? That's not, the, that's not the plan. The discussion at the moment it's is, around, is around civil servants. That was Rhys Mogg suggesting Truss's plan definitely would not affect public sector workers in general. But as the tweet I showed you earlier explained, if that was the case, the sums just didn't add up. Which is why, by lunchtime, Truss was forced into a humiliating U-turn. My policy on this has been misrepresented. There was never any intention to affect teachers and nurses. But I don't want to worry people. I don't want people to be concerned. So I am being very clear that we will not be going ahead with the regional pay boards. A major U-turn then? with national pay boards. Is this a Liz Truss U-turn? I'm being honest that the work concerns expressed, I believe my policy was being misinterpreted. So you're not I want to be clear with the public that I will not be going ahead with the regional pay boards. I'm somebody who is honest and upfront and I do what I say I will do and I'm being clear I will not be doing that. So that was Liz Truss going against her own policy announcement less than 24 hours later. That claim that the policy had been misrepresented also caused some problems, though, especially for the people on Team Liz. Brandon Lewis spoke to Radio 4. She wasn't misrepresented, well, was she? Was she? No, no, she was. Okay, who me, misrepresented her? Let's well, we be saw, completely clear about yeah, that yeah, if no, that's no, what I, she believes. Absolutely. You saw people yesterday from who? the Rishi Sunak campaign outlining that this was going to mean a pay cut for public sector workers. That was never the case. That was never suggested in anything. Uh, we've been very clear. Well, that it this would is, have if it well, was no, brought no, it in for all public sector no, workers in the long term. No, this was always looking at what would happen with new contracts for new staff who take them on. But as I say, Liz was very clear yesterday, this is not a policy that she's taking forward. She wants to focus so, 
from being wiped away. How long term was the how long term was the all public sectors pe- public sector workers plan? It's decades then, isn't it? If you're waiting for everyone currently well, serving to to leave the uh, civil service. Well, no, as I said, this service. was about potentially new contracts coming on and making sure that you're using taxpayers' money efficiently and effectively. And that well, was part of the wider. It's going to take you a wider, long time to save eight point eight billion pounds. Well, no, that wasn't what we were saying. What we were saying in the press release, as you said, was if you extrapolated this out, that's what you can do. And other people were giving different figures, but look, the reality is what Liz was outlining as a package yesterday was how you deal with Whitehall waste. One of the things we've all been targeted with uh, by the Treasury itself, actually, and the current Prime Minister, uh, is to deal with some of the waste we've seen in Whitehall, the growth we've seen in the civil service. Just in the last few years, we've seen roughly 91,000 more civil servants come into the sector. Now, beyond Liz Trust being a bit of an amateur, like, I do think this isn't just a Westminster story. This isn't just, oh, look, she did a U-turn. What a mistake. What's happened here, I think, is really indicative of, of her campaign in general and also Tory politics in general. What they'll always say is we can make cuts to the state, we can make cuts to taxes, we can let the rich keep more of their money, but it's not going to affect you because what we're going to do is we're going to get all of this money from efficiency savings. Don't worry, you're not going to notice. Then what happens is quite clearly efficiency savings. On the one hand, that means doing incredibly dangerous things like cutting down the number of hospital beds we have in our hospitals. So when a pandemic comes along, it's completely ready to collapse. You know, getting rid of things like nursery, nurses' bursaries, you might not notice in the first two or three years, but after a while, suddenly your health service is ready to collapse. They think you can do these things behind the scenes, but always it will have a real cost. If it saves significant money, we're going to feel it, essentially. So this policy is like basically everything the Tories say here. Either it's not going to save much money at all, you're just going to say, oh, we're going to stop using the printer so much in the Department of Health. Right? That, that's not going to save you a significant amount of money so that you can dramatically cut tax. If you want to dramatically cut tax, you're going to have to do really difficult, horrible things like cut the wages of loads of people or collapse the NHS. That's what the Tories have done for 12 years. And they still haven't learned. We've still got Liz Truss saying, I'm going to cut more taxes. I'm going to let the rich keep more money. But don't worry, you're not going to notice because all we're going to do is cut waste. The, the, the whole story completely unraveled in less than 24 hours. I'm now joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Pleasure to have you on the show. I want your comments on this U-turn. This is a taste of, of what is to come with the trust premiership. And, and as I said last, last week, it looks like it's set to be basically a continuation of all of the worst parts of the Johnson era without even having the false promise of leveling up. Actually, she's looking to to level down. She's looking to decrease the wages of people who live outside of London. And so, again, what we're seeing is this continuation of the, the reactionary blustering, the ego-driven kind of governance, the buffoonish posturing that we saw in the Boris Johnson premiership. Where on the face of it, you know, you have this blatantly inaccurate policy announcement, you know, saying that eight billion can be cut by uh, cutting the wages of civil servants. And then when challenged, they simply just dig their heels in, they lie and eventually just try to act like it never happened, you know, just kind of national gaslighting, et cetera. We're very used to this, given that we've just come off several years of, of Boris Johnson. But I think you're right there, Michael, to really hone in on behind the, you know, behind the theatrics and behind the kind of incompetence narrative, actually looking at what this policy indicates about the politics and the deeply reactionary ideology uh, that sits behind this policy announcement. Because what this policy is essentially about, um, as you said, is it's about painting the public sector as the enemy, essentially, as the enemy of the middle class and the working class, as something that needs to be starved, that needs to be strangled of its power to do anything other than just funnel wealth from the poorest and the middle of society into the, the already very wealthy, whether that's, you know, through indirectly through tax cuts and tax subsidies or whether it's through literally handing over vast sums of public money to the corporate sector. Because let's not forget, with all this talk of inefficiency and balancing the budget and being really rigorous with every penny of public money that's spent on you know, nurses' wages, etc., let's not forget that whilst the government likes to portray 
the public sector as wasteful and bloated, as having too much money, not having enough sense or as unaccountable. This is the same government that has absolutely no problem hemorrhaging money uh, with no accountability, with no transparency to the corporate sector. And, you know, we can even look at the fact that a judge ruled that in the middle of a pandemic, this government or the previous government, which is essentially, as we've, as I've just said, is going to continue with the next trust government, actually acted unlawfully in creating VIP lanes for their mates in the corporate sector to get first dibs on very important essential COVID contracts in the middle of a pandemic. That was actually ruled unlawful by a judge. Uh, 11 billion pounds of public money was given to companies that either were directly connected to conservative MPs or were companies that had absolutely no prior experience of the work that they were contracted to do. £37 billion was spent on a track and trace system that failed its main objective. So how can the government claim to be so concerned with how public money is spent to the point that they're cutting people's wages, public sector worker wages, in the middle of a cost of living crisis, when they are so liberal and loose with the public purse when it comes to shelling out to their corporate mates. Well, it's because this is not about the economic fallacy of balancing a budget. That's obviously not how uh, the government expenditure works. This is about rewiring public money away from the public whose money that is and from the public good and towards the already very rich and well-connected, who, of course, more often than not, do not pay tax and do not contribute to that public purse uh, or to public money themselves. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone with a policy like this. You are stigmatizing the public sector as inefficient, as ineffective, and thereby paving the way towards privatization, which is what we're seeing in the NHS and what I think we will continue to see with further years of Tory leadership. But you're also actually doing the physical like moving of public money from the public sector and from the public where it's supposed to be and where it's supposed to be funneled towards and towards the very rich. And we saw that in the pandemic. So when you look beneath the bluster of this U-turn and the kind of politicking, what is actually really important here is the ideological clue that it gives us, which is that as to, is to be expected trust is going to continue the same old Tory tale of robbing the poor and the middle classes to feed the un the limitless greed of the very wealthy. And so I think that is the, the ideological kind of underpinning of this policy, which even though this policy itself is being scrapped, um, is likely to be the guiding logic and the guiding principle of a trust premiership. Just to discuss the policy itself very briefly, I mean, I know it's been U-turned on now, so presumably it's not going to be implemented in the near future. But I did see people on Twitter, Tom Harwood was one of them saying, no, actually, this makes loads of sense. Obviously, wages should be um, dependent on how much it costs to live in any area. Why wouldn't you wait wages to the rental prices or the house prices in any area? Because that, you know, the cost of living does affect how valuable your 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 wages. Now, on the face of it, that might seem reasonable. It is the case that financially, if you are a teacher in Wigan, you, are, you, you can buy more, you can probably rent a bigger house than if you're a teacher in Brighton. But the reason why it doesn't stack up is because schools aren't struggling to get teachers in Brighton, but they are struggling to get teachers in Wigan. So it actually makes sense to give people essentially this kind of bonus for living in a poorer area or a part of the country which is less desirable to live in, which fewer people want to, to live. So, yeah, if, you, if what you care about is the size of your house, that's a way that people in or schools in Wigan can get teachers there. So that's that's why it would be bad to move away from this policy. And also why, obviously, it's counter to levelling up, because the whole point of levelling up is you want to have more people on higher incomes outside of the areas where currently everyone wants to live. And the public sector is precisely how you can do the kind of engineering to try and... I suppose, counteract the kind of concentrations of wealth that will happen if you leave everything to, to the market. So that's why it was a terrible idea. Good it's been scrapped. And yeah, I think all of the points you made there, absolutely correct in terms of the politics behind this. And yeah, just 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 shows you, you, you can't say we're not going to tax the risk rich and you're not going to feel it, right? We, we will. If there are tax cuts on rich people, we will feel it. That's why I'm against them.
Right. Let's take a look at another controversial statement Truss has made this week. The leadership hustings in Exeter, the topic of Scottish independence came up. If you look at Northern Ireland or Scotland, independence is very much um, a question again. And, you know, what is your plan to reverse that? <laughs> I I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't no, suppose you are planning to build any walls. No, I was, I was, I went to primary school in Paisley in Scotland, and I went to secondary school, oh, and you did too. Maybe we were in the same class. <laughs> anyway, um, I and I feel like I'm a child of the union. That I really believe we are a family, and we're better together. And I think the best thing to do with Nicola Sturgeon is ignore her. I think she's. <laughs> I think. difficult when she's first minister. She's, she's got a democratically elected position yeah. just as you would. I'm sorry, she's an attention seeker, Seb. So in, within 53 seconds, I'm incredibly committed to the union. No, I, I think the union's incredibly important. But also, by the way, I'm going to completely ignore the democratically elected leader of Scotland because I think she's an attention seeker. Dahlia, are those two statements consistent? If you wanted to be prime minister and you cared about the union, would you promise to completely ignore the democratically elected leader of Scotland? Again, it is the absolute worst parts of Johnsonism just continued and accelerated without any of the even surface level parts of the Boris Johnson agenda that were never delivered upon, but were at least part of the, the, prom the initial promise. When you look at actually what is happening here, it is such an indictment of our democracy that essentially 0.2% of the population, which is the percentage of the population that is represented by the Conservative Party membership, are sitting in that room chortling at the idea that a country that is supposed to be part of this so-called union have their democratically elected leader and want them to be represented in the politics of this country and respected and having and, and laughing essentially at the idea that they would want to exercise any participation in their own future when all of our fates are being decided by the most tiny minority of British society. And let's not forget every time the government essentially fails and can no longer govern, which seems to be very regularly now at this point, again, our fate is put into the hands of 0.2% of the population who find it absolutely hilarious that an entire nation that clearly are, at least when you look at the polling, wanting to have another say on a referendum and want their democratically elected leader to push for that on the, on the national stage, who find the very notion of that hilarious, which just goes to show the way that this particular group of people feel and actually very literally exercise ownership uh, over the political process in this country. The collapse of Rishi Sunak's leadership campaign has been accelerating, and in a desperate attempt to save it, he has been flinging ever bloodier red meat to right-wing Tory members. This was the latest briefing from Team Rishi. In order to identify and root out extremism in all its guises, Rishi will widen the government's definition of extremism. Rishi believes extremists do not just want to attack our values, but our very existence. That is why he will add vilification of the UK to the definition of extremism, making sure that those with an extreme hatred of our country that leads them to pose a risk to national security can be identified and diverted away from a destructive path. The Telegraph added some details saying, Extremists who vilified the UK would have to do so through writings or speech in order to be referred to the Prevent Programme. So don't worry, they're not casting the net too wide. It will only apply to writing or speech. So thoughts will still be allowed um, when Rishi Sunak, if Rishi Sunak is Prime Minister. Of course, it's unspecified how much vilification of Britain would be required to get someone on the extremism watch list. But you guys might want to be more careful with your comments criticising corrupt prime ministers, imperialist foreign policies and statues of slave traders because you never know who might be reading. Seriously though, the Prevent programme is already very controversial. It forces public sector employees like teachers, health workers and university lecturers to refer people they think are at risk of radicalisation. And it threatens to target and demonise political activists and ethnic minorities. A recent report into Prevent by Rights and Security International concluded 
This, in the United Kingdom, fundamental rights and equality within social justice movements are being eroded by Prevent, a country's strategy that aims to stop people from embracing forms of extremism that the government claims could lead to terrorism. The fundamental rights that people in the UK are gradually losing include the freedoms of thought and belief, freedom of association, and the rights to speak out and protest peacefully against state policies. Our findings suggest that while the government's use of the strategy continues to disproportionately impact Muslim communities, targeting of so-called non-violent extremism is producing a climate in which people from non-Muslim backgrounds are also losing their ability to engage in non-violent protest and civic action without fear of harms. So, as that report makes clear, Prevent already disproportionately affects Muslims, but not disproportionately enough for Rishi Sunak. According to The Telegraph, Mr. Sunak also announced proposals to refocus Prevent onto Islamic extremism as the biggest threat to the security of the UK after complaints that it had tilted too much towards right-wing militants radicalised over the internet. And whenever you see complaints, it's always important to ask who exactly was making those complaints. Well, in May, a draft report of a review of Prevent carried out by Sir William Shawcross was leaked to The Guardian. They reported then, in one particularly provocative recommendation seen by The Guardian, the review claims there has been a double standard approach to tackling different forms of extremism, with individuals targeted for expressing mainstream right-wing views because the definition of neo-Nazism has expanded too widely, while the focus on Islamist extremism has been too narrow. What's important to note here is that William Shawcroft, who made those recommendations, is not a neutral figure on these issues. In 2012, he was director of the Henry Jackson Society, a notorious neoconservative think tank. And he's said in the past, Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. I think all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Islamic populations. That's from 2012. So the concerns Sunak is responding to come from someone who likes to hint at the great replacement theory. Quite phenomenal that guy was put in charge of a government review into Prevent. Prevent was was always kind of about this. It was always not only about increasing the surveillance of and suspicion surrounding black and brown communities in this country, but it was also about increasing the capacity of the British state to surveil and criminalize its critics more broadly. And of course, this isn't just about, you can't just look at the effects of Prevent solely in terms of, okay, what are the concrete measurable impacts? For example, how many people have been referred to Prevent? What has happened to those people? But actually, the effect of Prevent that you can't measure as easily is the self-censorship that it encourages. You know, the fact that people from black and brown communities are more nervous to join protests or to express their political views for fear of being referred to something like prevent and so just stay out of political life altogether. And that's a more difficult to measure impact, but it is certainly one that that exists. Because when you actually look at what prevent is supposed to do, it is about getting people to report members of their own community when they see signs of radicalization. Now, of course, when you look at how these signs of radicalization are actually defined, and bear in mind, this is training that anyone who is in the public sector, whether you're a teacher or a healthcare provider, has to undergo this training and is so is told to look out for these particular signs. Signs include things like becoming more interested in your religion or becoming withdrawn, you know, having depression or, you know, being isolated. Now, what they, they don't mean, you know, is someone suddenly going to church every Sunday. That's obviously the cultural moment that we are in means that that is not what people are getting referred to prevent for. Um, it's always been quite clearly targeted towards Muslims. And that is an example of how the state takes normal behaviors like becoming more interested in your religion or becoming religious or being having depression or anxiety, things that everyone goes through that is like part of the human experience and giving it a kind of sinister and threatening edge when it is done by a particular group of people. That is not obviously conducive to 
the kind of belonging and creating the sense of belonging in British society that prevent uh, claims to, to be to be doing. But also in what, what Rishi Sunak is showing is that being critical of Britain's foreign policy has always been one of those signs of radicalization that has been listed in prevent training guides. And so that kind of political speech and, and freedom of speech and freedom of thought element has always been part of the um, prevent agenda and has always disproportionately affected people from um, particular communities. And I think that what's happened here is that ironically, the inclusion of white supremacists was always a way of whitewashing this racist piece of legislation. So, you know, when this legislation was first rolled out, so many of us said, this is Islamophobic, this is going to disproportionately stigmatize and impact people of color, this is criminalizing normal behaviors when they're done by certain communities, this is going to foster all different kinds of, of issues. And we were always told, oh, but we also include white supremacists in this. So it can't be racist because it also applies to white, white supremacists and the far right. And then the irony is that when that actually started materializing and more and more people were being referred to prevent on the basis of possible uh, white supremacy or risk of radicalization by white supremacists, it pushed the government into a position, and Rishi Sunak is kind of representing this corner that the government has put itself into, where it has to be, it can't hide behind that anymore. So it is actually having to be much more explicit in what it is trying to do, which is not to prevent harm or counter radicalization as this kind of neutral term that can be equally, that is race neutral. Rather, it is about disciplining people into not articulating certain criticisms of the British state. And it begins with people of color and it expands to include trade unionists, to include anyone who's critical of particular parts of the British state. And it does that under this guise of a punitive and restrictive idea of Britishness, which in a final gaslighting moment is claiming to be about fostering inclusion and belonging in British society, when actually what it is doing is using incredibly exclusionary and punitive ideas of what Britishness is in order to discipline people into not expressing particular, especially political beliefs and God forbid, forms of political organizing that are critical of the British state. That timeline is so interesting, isn't it? So as you say, people used to say, oh no, prevent can't be racist because it also tackles the far right and white supremacy. Then I think last year was the first time that you had more people being referred for far right politics and for Islamist politics. And suddenly they're like, oh, that can't be right. We wanted them to focus on some white people, but not more white people than Muslim people. We've got to redress this balance. And that's why You've got Rishi Sunak now saying we want to refocus prevent on Islamist extremism because they don't like the fact that, oh, suddenly, we, no, we, we, we don't like this idea that actually it's the right-wing extremists that are the biggest problem. Must be something wrong. We've got to change the algorithm so we still pluck out more, more Muslims than right-wingers. Like You, you, you kind of couldn't make it up in terms of how brazen it is. Um, it also seems incredibly complacent because there is a problem with far-right ideology in this country. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that prevent is the correct way to deal with it, but it is, it should be a genuine concern. It shouldn't be something where we just say, oh, let's, let's change the system so we don't keep pointing this out. And as some evidence of this, just this week, a new study has suggested that increasing numbers of children are being ensnared by far-right groups on Line. So the Guardian report, gaming forums, private chat rooms and slickly produced online leaflets or study guides are among the platforms and tactics used to introduce young teenagers to racist, white supremacist, neo-Nazi and involuntary celibate. So that's incel ideas. Um, we are detecting cases of very young people ending up on the very far end of the extremist spectrum where they have planned or have even carried out attacks, warned Julia Ebner, a senior fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. That same article also reveals that children as young as 13 have been convicted for planning far-right attacks. But does Sunak see this all as indicating a frightening growth in far-right ideology? Well, apparently not. Instead, he sees it as a reason to widen the definition of his Islamist extremism so that the Prevent program continues to target black and brown people just like it was always supposed to. Dahlia, I suppose the brazenness of this, saying, oh no, we were ensnaring too many white people, let's 
explicitly focus on on Muslims, does that mean that prevent is going to be a bit harder to, sorry, easier to challenge? It's a bit more explicit what's going on here. I think it's really difficult to to say that it will be easier to challenge because essentially from a top-down perspective, when you look at the press, when you look at the way that our politicians speak, when you look at, you know, Boris Johnson has a long history of dehumanizing and stigmatizing and particularly Muslims in this country. A culture has been created and you can see it also in the Labour Party. You know, we saw it in the Ford report. A culture has been created where Islamophobia, suspicion of Muslims, stigmatization of Muslims and racialized communities in general. And the general idea that people of color represent some kind of material or social threat to, let's face it, white British people, that has become a very normalized part of the discourse. And that is a development that that's always been part of the British political landscape, at least during the 20th century in particular. But there's a particular continuation of it where it is done in very neutral terms of, you know, for example, instead of talking about, you know, whiteness, talking instead about British values and being incredibly specific and changing the definitions of things like British values and extremism in order to suit the particular agenda that is that is at play here. And so I think it has become so normalized to treat entire communities with suspicion that when you see it happening at the highest levels of, levels of political office, whether it's in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, because let's not forget, this is a form of racism that is shared between the two major parties in this country. That connection between Muslim communities and the feelings of suspicion and fear and, and hatred has to be broken first before we can begin to fight a policy that is essentially fits within that that logic. And so I actually think that we are in a place right now um, in British society where the idea that Muslims and like should be specifically surveilled, not under the guise of some kind of neutral application of a counter-terrorism legislation, but actually just doing what it says on the tin, I actually think that that is so normalized that it, it's going to be much harder than we think to oppose it on those terms. Let's not forget at the previous Tory conference, I think it was, you had people on panels talking about how we need to be more Islamophobic and actually using the term Islamophobia as something to be proud of. So when you're in that particular political landscape, you have to have people see Muslims as human beings and not as threats first. That has to be the first ideological step that needs to be made before something like prevent and its chokehold over our society and all of those knock-on effects that I spoke about of strangling political discourse and limiting political op- the capacity to oppose the government politically, before that can take place, you need to sort out the ideological issue um, first, which is a long and sticky and difficult process, of course. Before we move on from the Tory leadership race, let's just look at the data showing now, these desperate gambits by Sunak don't seem to have done him much good. So among Tory members, this is the latest YouGov polling, Truss has an absolutely enormous lead on Sunak, trouncing him by nearly 40 points. She's also absolutely thrashing him amongst Leave voters. Still, though, it looks like Sunak's parting gift in this race is going to be to shamelessly and dramatically shift frontline politics to the right. For no apparent reason, he's already lost. It does just, it seems so bizarre to me. These Tory leadership candidates, they're coming up with ever more bizarre reactionary policies, which will only really appeal to Tory members and not to the wider public. Liz Truss saying she's going to cut everyone's wages. All of the public sector are going to get pay cuts unless you live in the Southeast. You've got Rishi Sunak saying, criticize Britain and you're going to get done by prevent. Why are they doing this when the results of the race are already known? You know, if you, if you were a smart, if you had any interest in winning the next general election, you'd say, look, this is a done deal. Let's make some kind of backroom deal. We'll stop coming up with random policies, but they keep coming. I suppose all power to them. Keep coming up with the random policies as long as you don't implement any of them. Final story. Lydia Thorpe is only the ninth ever First Nations senator to be elected to the Australian Federal Parliament. The member of the Australian Greens was required to take an oath of allegiance to the Queen before she could take her seat. And this is what happened next. 
Senator Thorpe, please come to the table to make and subscribe the affirmation of allegiance. Well, please recite the affirmation on the card handed to you. I, Sovereign Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe. I'm going to wait for quiet. Senator Thorpe, you are required to recite the oath as printed on the card, so please recite the oath. Uh, Senator Thorpe, Senator Thorpe, order. I, Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law. Uh, Senator Thorpe, please sign the test roll and Senator's roll. I love, like, I think deliberately mispronouncing heirs is sort of like a sign of disrespect. And more significantly, you heard in the background there other senators calling on Thorpe to have some respect, which is, I mean, it is a bit much, isn't it, coming from a group of people jeering someone wanting to commemorate their ancestors who were subject to genocide. But Forbes' statement has received more support on social media, and she's been interviewed around the world, including on Times Radio. Well, I just stated a fact that uh, the Queen uh, and, and what the Queen represents is colonisation, and colonisation in this country, in Australia, has done so much damage to First Nations people, to Indigenous people right across this country. They uh, are responsible for genocide. So, yes, colonisation uh, murdered and raped Indigenous people when they came here with their boats. And I felt as going into the Senate, into the Parliament, that swearing allegiance to a colonising queen of another country who created so much harm to this country's first people was demoralising uh, and it was the wrong thing to do. It, it didn't feel right in my heart and a lot of Indigenous people in Australia do not subscribe to being colonised. It took away our livelihoods. It took away our language, song, dance. It took away the essence of who we are as Indigenous people in this country. So to be made to swear allegiance to someone else's queen of someone else's country is ludicrous. It is ludicrous. British settler colonisers were massacring First Nations people from the late 18th century all the way into the 20th century. Most massacres were planned and carried out by white civilians, but nearly half were conducted by agents of the state. Until 1901, those would have been agents of Great Britain. And that's only the massacres that we know about. Before Britain invaded Australia, the First Nations population is thought to have been somewhere between 1 million and 1.5 million people. By 1900, there were fewer than 100,000. It was only in 1969 that the Australian government repealed laws giving them the right to remove First Nations children from their families permanently. But if you're from a First Nations background and you're not willing to give an uncritical allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen, you get jeers in the Australian Parliament. You know, sometimes when moments like this happen, I find it really helpful to actually just strip back all of the noise, strip back all of the context and just think about like what is actually happening here. So what you have is you have a group of people who have been living on a territory for more than 70,000 years. Then another group of people come and steal that territory, uh, commit genocide. And the few who survive that 
are subjected to some of the most dispossessing and oppressive policies in recent history, including stealing children from their parents and sending them to schools where they can be robbed of their language and their culture. You ban them from, as as Lydia talked about in that segment, from speaking their language, from enjoying their culture. You deny them the right to vote in a system that you have imposed on them. You force them to integrate into that system that deliberately puts them at the bottom of every possible hierarchy you can think of. And then when a member of that community is finally able to be part of that system as a representative, a system that, by the way, has systematically dispossessed her community and her ancestors, you then ask her to show you respect. You're not, you're, you're not being polite enough to your colonizer, is what they're saying to her. And even though we have put you in a position where you are forced to be part of a system that hates you, um, because otherwise you'll have absolutely no recourse to, to representation. And so when you think about what you are asking indigenous people to tolerate and what you as the state, as the colonial state, the settler colonial state in that country, what you are refusing to tolerate. It is the most unbelievable double standard that I, I can't even believe that it isn't ridiculed um, in every newspaper. And the, the last thing I want to say on this, and this is what always happens when we have these conversations, is that you say that we, as people who have been colonized either by settler colonial states or by non-settler colonial states, you say that we are the ones who are rewriting history in order to suit our sensitivities and that we are the ones who are over-obsessed with language over substantive issues. And yet you are the one who can't stand it when someone is simply naming history for what it is and naming your role in that history. So who is actually here rewriting history to suit their snowflake uh, sensibilities? Is it Lydia Thorpe who is having to participate in a system that, as I said, dispossesses her and her community in order to try and get some representation for that community, who is having to withstand the normalization of a system that has done untold things to those like her and who is simply naming the colonizer a colonizer or is it the colonizer who can't bear to be confronted with who they have historically been and quite frankly as we saw in that footage who they continue to be so whenever these things happen i always just think to myself how have they managed to switch the idea of rewriting history and snowflake sensibilities to cast us in that position when this entire thing is a scandal because they cannot bear to actually be told the truth about the history that not only um, the Australian state and obviously the British state has been part of, but actually the system that is being perpetuated and continued to this very day. I think that's an incredibly powerful note to end tonight's show on. Dahlia, thank you so much for, for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me, Michael. And we will be back tomorrow for live commentary of the Tory leadership debate. So that's going from 8pm. It'll be me and Aaron giving live reaction to what's going on. I'm also going to go to one comment before we wrap up. In the YouTube chat, Snarlmark says, please, can you give a birthday shout out to my friend James? He's a very loyal longtime viewer and always watches live. So it would mean the world to him. Happy birthday, James. Now, I can confirm that James does always watch the show live, and that's because James Fox is our producer. It's his 30th birthday. Let's get a happy birthday, Fox. So thank you to Fox for working on his birthday. Thank you for watching this evening. As I say, check out the channel tomorrow for live reaction to the Tory leadership debate. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.